Thank you all um, so very much for joining us this morning. I'm Erica Allen. I'm one of the pastors here at Horizon. We are starting a new message series today. Uh, actually, we started it last week. It's the life of the party. So what is it that God, who is the life of the party, what is it that God offers to us when we are people who are really good at committing party fouls, right? Breaking things in life, messing things up, leaving ourselves, making decisions that leave us embarrassed and ashamed of, of what all we're doing in the world. What is it that God offers to us? What kind of party is it that God offers to us in a world where so many of us are committing party fouls? One of the biggest party fouls that we can have in life, just life in general, is getting stuck. Right? There's this, this point that so many of us come to in life where we are absolutely stuck. We have no idea what the next step in our journey needs to be. And in that moment of being stuck, the last thing that we think to do is to have a party. And this morning, we are going to learn about what God offers to those of us who feel stuck. What kind of party it is that God calls us to and invites us into. So since we're talking about parties, two weeks ago, Chris and I got on a plane and we went to Denver, Colorado without our three children. It was a party. It was amazing. Um, after years of, of being, um, so it felt like years, being cooped up with the kids, um, not traveling, not doing a lot outside of our house, we had the freedom to get on an airplane and travel to Denver, Colorado, and it was literally a party. So um, I, I will admit this, we went the first week in May. I was, I was raised in North Carolina. I've lived in Florida now for five years. It's the first week in May. I think it's going to be 92 degrees. Um, there's going to be, you know, in Colorado, there's going to be these bright green fields with like wildflowers springing up. It's going to be beautiful and amazing. And I get there and it literally snowed on us all day, every day that we were there the first week in May. I'm like, what is this wild place <laughs> that we are visiting? So the idea of what I had planned changed really quickly. We went from doing these like extreme hikes in the Rocky Mountain National Park that I had planned out to skiing, which was great. But I told Chris, I, we are not leaving Colorado without going on a hike in Rocky Mountain National Park. I looked up all these pictures. I knew what it looked like. We were not leaving Colorado without me getting to hike through the Rocky, through this little trail that I had picked out on the Rocky Mountain, in Rocky Mountain National Park. So um, we get up early on that Wednesday morning. We pack our lunch, um, and we also ran this red Jeep Wrangler. It was awesome. Um, we pack our lunch, get everything ready. We're, like, headed out to hike, and I, we're driving to the Grand Lake entrance of Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, we're, like, 15 minutes from the gate, and this stuff starts hitting the windshield. And Chris is like, do you know what that is? Hitting the windshield. And I was like, uh, it's water frozen in the shape of snowflakes. And Chris is like, yes, it is snowing right now. Do you know what temperature it is, Erica? And I was like, yeah, the car says it's 31 degrees Fahrenheit right now. He was like, when's the last time you felt 31 degrees? And I was like, it was a long time ago. It's going to be cold. Yes, it's snowing. It's not great hiking conditions. But we are going hiking in the Rocky Mountain National Park because I said that's what we were going to do before I leave Colorado. So we, you know, we drive to the trailhead. Um, Chris and I like start our four mile hike to the headwaters of the Colorado River. That's like what I really wanted to see. So we like take off and y'all the trail that we're supposed to follow is literally covered in snow. Like everything is covered in snow. It's like more snow than I've ever seen in my entire life. There's snow everywhere, and it's continuing to come down. I have some pictures, but you can see the trail, right? Like, this is, this is fine. So 
I mean, other people have done this. Those are footprints. Like, everything's fine. So I tell Chris, like, we're just going to keep going until we get to the headwaters. And about this time, like, Chris is like, you know, I'm cold. His pant legs have gotten wet. He, we hike in Florida, so we don't really have, like, the right snow boots and gear for what we're doing. And there's snow that's, like, gotten over his boots and, like, into it. And he's like, They're my, I'm pretty sure my boots are full of water right now. My feet are really cold. And I'm like, well, we're going to the headwaters of the Colorado River. So we, like, keep going and going. And all of a sudden, uh, and we're following this trail, which, like, it, it's fine. We, it's not, it's, it's really fine. Everything was fine. And Chris, like, takes a step. And he was like, I don't really know where the trail is. So, so these footprints end. We get into this sort of open area. I, yeah, go, go to the next slide. This is, sort, this is where we are. So there's no trail there. Um, and Chris is like, I don't know. I don't know where to go. So I said, just go like right through the middle of that field. And so he took off through the middle of the field, and maybe three steps in, he's in a snowdrift like up past his waist. <laughs> And we're hungry because we didn't bring our lunches with us. We left them back in the car. His feet are already wet. I'm, like, not happy either. It's snowing like this. Y'all see all that snow? It's snowing. Chris is like, here's your jacket. Uh, let's go do this. So we're, but we're at this point, right, where we can't find the trail ahead of us. Chris is literally, like, stuck in a snowdrift up to his waist. And we're looking out. At, at, at what we have to do to get to the headwaters of the Colorado River, and there's no trail, there's no map, we're stuck. Like, we're literally stuck. We have no idea what to do to move forward. And I looked at Chris, and he's like, I, I can't find the trail. I don't know what we're going to do next. This seems kind of dangerous. We don't have on the right gear. My pants are wet. My feet are wet. I'm freezing cold. I don't know what to do next. We're stuck. And I said, I know what we're going to do next. We're going to turn around and go back to the car. And so that day, in that moment of being stuck, we had the option to turn around, realize we did not have on the right gear for what we were doing, turn around, go back to the car, eat our peanut butter sandwich and our chips, and enjoy the rest of our vacation. We had, done, we had hiked through the Rocky Mountain National Park. We did not need to traverse this dangerous terrain and get frostbite in the middle of May, like, for no reason. But as, I, as Chris turned around and walked back on sort of the trail that, People had come to, it, it was obvious, lots of people had turned around at that point. As Chris turned around and walked back, there was a moment where I stood there, and that's when I took this picture. I looked out across there, and this is what I realized. This is what I realized, that our known past, the, the people who had marked out that trail for us, even our own footprints, our known past was not going to be what was going to help us through the unknown future. There were no footsteps. We were stuck. There was uncharted territory. And I remember standing there at the end of sort of these trails and these footsteps. And I remember looking out, realizing that we were stuck. We didn't know what way we were going to go. And I remember looking out, and it, it, it is so clear to me. It felt like God said to me, what is next in your life? There's not a map for. There's not a playbook for. This next season of life is going to require something more of you, something different of you. That's what I learned on that hike, and I came back to Tampa, Florida, and I feel like that is the truest thing that I've heard in a long time. I, I really do believe it was sort of this voice of God that said, the, the known past, the, the carved out path and trail that you have followed to this point is not going to be what you need for this next season of life. Three children, a new church, 
in the midst, in the sort of the aftermath of this pandemic, what we need, and all of us are in this situation, right? I'm not the only person who doesn't exactly know what the future holds, but I know enough to know that I feel kind of stuck. Like, what's next, God? There's not a good, clear footpath for me to follow. There, it feels like there's only snowdrifts up to my waist right now for me to get stuck in. What is next for me, God? And I feel like that's a question I've heard as I talk to so many of you. You feel like you're asking, we're kind of stuck. We don't know what's next. I have some good news for you guys that in the midst of this, this stuckness, so often the last thing we think about is having a party. But I want to read to you in Nehemiah chapter 8 about a group of people who, this is a human predicament, this not knowing what's next and this, this feeling stuck. It's a human situation that people have experienced for thousands and thousands of years. And in the face of being stuck, we have an option. We can turn around and go back to the car where everything's safe and follow the footsteps everybody else had. Or we can, we can march our way through uncharted territory, holding on to the hand of God. And I'm going to read you a story about some people who did that. In Nehemiah chapter 8, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead, pull them out. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to get you caught up on what's happening before we get to this point in the story. So the background is these folks called the Israelites, they're people who God set apart and, and saved from Egypt out, out of slavery and oppression, put them in this place, the promised land in Israel, and then they didn't do what they were supposed to. They didn't follow God. They didn't always listen to God's commandments, and they get, they get put in exile. They get kicked out of Israel, and they have to live in Babylon. It's hundreds of miles from where they grew up. They eat different food in this exile place for 50 years. They eat different food. They speak a different language. They live in a different climate. Everything about their lives are different. We've heard the words new normal. They live in a new normal for 50 years. And after 50 years of living in this exile, not 50 days, not 50 months, 50 years, after 50 years of living in exile in Babylon, living in this complete new normal, God opens up a way for them to go back to Israel. They go back to Israel and they, they settle in a city, in the city, Jerusalem. And before they had left on ex, uh, in the exile, they built this wall to protect the city of Jerusalem. Back then, like a wall could literally protect you from, from other armies, from other invaders. Like a wall was a, a very helpful thing to sort of wall off the city and protect your people. And when they get back to Jerusalem, everything is different, including this wall has been completely decimated and destroyed. So they, they lived in this new normal in Babylon. Now it's time for them to live in a new normal back in Jerusalem. But they want everything to be the exact same. They want everything to be the exact same that it was 50 years before then. So Nehemiah, who's the leader of the people, says, I know what to do. I know what I'm going to do. We are going to rebuild this wall. So he goes to this king. He asks for his help to, to rebuild this wall. The king gives him money and people and helps him rebuild this wall of Jerusalem. Okay, so does that make sense that the wall was decimated, they get this amazing miracle, these resources, they rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But I have to tell you something. They go back to Jerusalem, but God it was really clear all before they get back there that this new city, this new Jerusalem that he's been talking about to them and inviting them into is described in the Bible as a city without walls. 
And the first thing they did when they went back to Jerusalem is rebuild the wall because everything has to be, we have to reconstruct our normal and what, what we were expecting. But the city wasn't supposed to have a wall. So the people were like living in their houses, in this wall, getting up day in, day out, living their lives. And they realized, hey, we're not that happy. Like we're missed, something's not right here. Like everything's supposed to be normal. Everything's set up the exact way it was 50 years ago, but something isn't right. Like our heart just doesn't feel right. There's something in my soul that says things aren't great. Like something just isn't right right now. And so this is what happens. Nehemiah chapter 8, the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns. They fixed the wall. All the people, all the people who were there came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. So the, the Bible, the Torah, they said, bring this out for us to read, which the Lord has commanded for Israel. We're lost. We don't exactly know what to do next. We've done everything we know to do. We still don't feel right. So bring out the Bible and, and let's figure out what we need to do next. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So there's this whole crowd of people standing there listening to the, to the word of God be read. He read it aloud from daybreak. So the sun comes up, he starts reading it. He reads it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Pedadiah, Michelle, uh, Malkajai, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalom. Whew, that's a mouthful. So he's, he's standing there and he's got all these guys standing on the side of him. Ezra opens the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. So as he's reading this, all the people stand up to hear what he says. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and they responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed their faces down and worshipped the Lord on the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bami, Sherebiah, Jasmine, Jacob, Shabbatai, Hobadiah, Maasiah, Kaleda, goodness gracious, all these people instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So as they're reading, they're like telling them what this law means, what they're reading, what it means. They read from the book of law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people understood what was being read. So for six hours, the people sat there, read the word of God, and these people explained to the people what it meant. Then Nehemiah, the governor, the leader, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. So these people have listened to the word of God for six hours and they are weeping and crying because they realize they've rebuilt this wall that God didn't really ask them to do, but that they needed something normal and something regular in, the in their lives. So they did the only thing they knew to do, but but they're reading this, and God is saying, this isn't exactly what you think the future is going to look like. It's not going to look like this. And the people are crying, and they're wailing, and they're weeping, and they're upset. And they're like, what are we going to do next? This, we don't know what to do next. And Nehemiah said to them, in verse 10, it says, Nehemiah said to them, as they're weeping, like, don't do this anymore. This day is holy to the Lord. Stop mourning and weeping. And then Nehemiah says, go. Go and enjoy choice food. 
and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not a wall, not an old normal, not what all you think is. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. I feel like somebody here needs to hear this this morning. Okay? The joy of the Lord is your strength, not a wall, not everything else you're putting up in your life. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When these people were weeping and wailing and they're stuck, they did exactly what all of us do when we are stuck in life. They have a pity party. They get mad at each other. They get mad at themselves. They get mad at God. They start crying and throwing a fit and being mad and being upset. They call their mamas. They call their daddies. They, they, they do everything they can when they're stuck to get out of this stuck mess except go to God. And when they stopped and they spent some time listening to God, what did God tell them, y'all? Quit throwing a pity party and throw a real party. And this is the absolute opposite thing any of us do when we're stuck. Don't ask my husband what it looked like this week when I was stuck on this sermon a couple times. I was not throwing a party. I was not eating the best food that we had in the house. I was not drinking the best drinks. I wasn't hanging out with my friends. I was not throwing a party. But what does God say? What does God have Nehemiah tell the people? When you are stuck, throw a party. And do you know why God says this? Do you know why God tells us to throw a party? Because in the party, we begin to hear about the goodness and the joy that God has for us. Invite people who have nothing prepared. Invite people who have nothing prepared. Invite people who are empty to your table. You want to know how you begin to know about the goodness that God has for you when you're stuck? Throw a party. Invite people who can't bring anything with them to the party and give them everything you got. And this is why. Because it teaches us to trust in what it is God has. Because here's the deal, guys. Trust is traction. When you are spinning your wheels, trust is traction. It will grab the ground, it will put you up on higher ground, and it will get you to the next place. Trust in God. Trust in each other. Trust in who it is God has called you to be is traction to get you out of the stuck mess that you are in. And the way that we start trusting is we throw a party. We actually begin to believe that this God of joy and goodness has something wonderful for us. We actually begin to believe that because trust is traction. It is what will begin to get us out of that mess. Begin to trust God. God has goodness for you. Did you hear what, what those people told the, the Israelites who thought the wall would be what would save them? The wall is not going to save you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And you have to begin to trust that God has a clear path for you for what's next. And there is nothing like being in the middle of that field that I showed. If you want to be able to trust God, you've got to be close to God. You've got to be opening up that Bible after you just pulled up. Spend some time reading God's Word, praying to God, drawing close to God by inviting people who have nothing prepared, doing the things God asks us to do. Trust is traction, and if you want to be able to trust and get out of this stuck mess, your proximity to God matters. 
Your proximity to God matters. You've got to have an anchor to hold on to to pull you up out of those snow drifts that are up over your waist. You've got to have something to help your, help your wheels get unstuck. Proximity to God, closeness to God, out in the middle, far away from God's plan is where we get stuck. It's where we get lost. And we have got to get back close to God. Proximity to God is what's going to help us next. We've got to trust God and be close to God. The second thing is we've got to trust each other. We have got to trust each other. It's been a re- we live in a world that teaches us not to trust each other. Turn on the news. Ask somebody about these new mask mandates. It does not take long to understand. We are not good at trusting each other. And we have got, we've got to start it right here. We've got to start trusting each other to have some traction in the world. We've got to say, you know what? I don't know what's next. Tell me what you think I should do next in my life. I'm stuck and I don't know what to do next. Trust that with somebody else. Trust is traction. We've got to start trusting each other. And the final thing that I want y'all to hear me say this morning is that you've got to start trusting who's got, who God's called you to be. You've got to start trusting who God's called you to be. You're in the job that you're in because God trusts you with the call he's placed on your life. You're the parent God has asked you to be because God has trusted little lives to, to be under you, to be loved by you. Trust is traction. Trust who it is that God has called you to be. Your marriage is stuck. Trust in the God who called you two together and cling tightly to that. Let that be the traction that gets you out of the stuck part of your marriage and your relationship. You don't know what's next in your job. Cling tightly to that call God has placed on your life. Trust it. Trust it and let it pull you out of the stuck mess that you are in. Trust in God is traction, not a wall, not building back the perfect normal life that we had pre-14 months ago. None of that stuff is going to save us. What is it? What is it that you've expected to get you out of that stuck mess that you're in? Trust, trust in God, trust in each other, and trust in who God's called you to be. Trust is traction for getting you out of this stuck mess. We live in a world that's really hard to trust God, to trust each other, and to trust who God's called us to be. But I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't think God had something special for those of you here right now this morning. I, I, I went to seminary. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I, I studied about a man named John Wesley. He was the founder of the Methodist movement. It wasn't even a church then. Um, these people in England were stuck. They were literally stuck. Every Sunday morning, they got up and they went through the motions of going to church, but they were stuck. They were stuck in their jobs. They were stuck in their lives. They walked past people who were hungry and starving. There were people, alcoholism was running, like rampant addiction was going crazy in England at this time. The church and society was stuck. And John Wesley came into church one day and he said, I am sick and tired of living my life like this. He went to just the perfect colleges to study to be the exact right priest and pastor that he needed to be, and he still felt stuck. And he looked around at the world he was living in, and he realized it was stuck too. Does anybody feel like that ever? You look around and you say, I feel stuck. The world feels stuck. I don't know if we're ever going to get out of this mess that we're in. And, and John Wesley's like, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to trust in God. And I'm going to trust in the people that God's put around me. I'm going to ask 
eight or nine or ten of these guys who I've been studying with, I'm going to ask them to join a small group with me, and we're going to read the Bible, and we're going to pray for each other, and we're going to do a few things that the Bible says. And so they had fun. This is the number one thing they did. They had fun. First of all, when he got stuck, he said, let's have fun with each other. So he gathers them in a circle, and they have fun, and they get to know each other, and they read the Bible, and they pray, and they feel like God is asking them to care for those who are poor. They start a school for kids who could not afford to go to school because public education wasn't a thing at this point. They started a school for poor children, and they taught them how to read. They got coats for people who couldn't afford coats to wear in England when it's blizzarding outside. He started collecting food to give to folks who have nothing to eat. He was like, I'm not living stuck anymore. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust these gr this group of men that God's put around me, and we are going to start trusting who God has asked us to be. God called me and asked me to be a pastor. And then he finds out there are these mine workers who can't go to church on Sundays and who don't have the right clothes to wear on a Sunday morning anyway. So on Tuesday afternoons, he stands in the field before the guy, after the guys get off work in mines, and he sits there and preaches to them in a field. He says, I don't, I don't need a church wall. I don't need church walls to be telling people about the goodness of God. I'm going to trust who God's called me to be. I'm going to be that in the middle of a field for a bunch of miners who need to hear that God's love and goodness and joy is for them. God wants a party for them in their lives. And I tell you that story because he started a movement that you are part of. Every single one of you are here today because that guy said, I'm not sitting in a church and reading the Bible and being bored anymore. I'm going to be excited about what it is that God has called me to do. And so I'm asking you right now, this morning, if you are stuck, what party can you have? What party can you host? Who can you invite over? And how can you begin to trust God, trust other folks, and trust who God's called you to be so you can step out into the next thing that God needs you to do so that we can all begin to shine light and ignite change in a world desperate for it? Will you pray with me? God, we thank you this morning. We thank you this morning that you call ordinary people just like us who live our lives stuck, who our first in instinct is so often to just be sad and upset and worried and mad and fearful and to, to just stay stuck there. You call us, God, to trust you, to find our joy in your strength to pull us out of the mess that we're in. And so right now we just, we just ask you to do that, God, to give us traction to get out of this stuck mess, to cling to you. We ask you, God, to help us trust one another. And God, most of all, we pray that you'll continue to make us brave to follow in to the call and the life that you have for us. Amen.